Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Within our conversations, we speak often about parents' rights everywhere, right? We talk about it, you know, with with schools. We talk about it with uh, libraries. And the real shameful way that the discussion about libraries take place, there's a difference between school libraries and public libraries. And there's a difference between maybe materials that would exist, books that would exist in a school library than a public library. There's a difference. It's an easy thing to to recognize. It's an easy thing to understand. And we have spoken in depth about how politically, the political left has decided that parents shouldn't have a say. Which is weird because all we ever heard was parents need to be involved in their kids' education and then parents got involved in their kids' education and those who do the education said, whoa, whoa, we didn't mean that. We didn't mean you should actually like have a say. We just meant that you should make sure that little Johnny does uh, the woke homework assignment that we've given to him or her or, or, or they, Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. That's uh, the, 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 the number. That's how you get to be a part of the show. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Well, this was Gavin Newsom. He's in a, a what seems to be a school library. He's got a little placard on the podium uh, that says California's family agenda. He's the governor of California, and some people think he's going to replace Joe Biden on the ticket. I don't see it. I think it's too late. But I've seen weirder things happen. It's possible. He's there. He's doing this press conference. He's talking uh, about how California's family agendas. I, I don't. I don't know what, considering the total lack of families that now exist in California because everybody's moved out. Because who the hell can afford it? A family agenda should mean maybe not taxing people out of the state. One man's theory here. But the question, of course, is, well, the question. The question is, of course, LGBTQ related. You mentioned a lot today about parental rights and getting their um, their rights. There was a rally this morning at the Capitol. They, they essentially said that they'd feel like they won't have any rights with the number of the bills that are going on in the Which legislature. Which bills were they referring to? There's a bunch of them. AB5 is one of them. But majorly, majorly around like LGBTQ students and those trans- transitioning. Can you mm. give me a comment on that? Because they don't feel like they're going to have any rights as I decide- Ah, the old we don't have any rights gambit. First, we're talking about students. We're not talking about adults. That seems uh, very, very obvious. Secondly... If we have children transitioning, we have ourselves a serious problem in society because that's not something children can do. Boys are not girls and girls are not boys. And we see further and further the evidence that there is a real desire to split apart the family, to destroy the nuclear family. And the reason that it has become something that I address when I see it 
is because it is so incredibly dangerous to the future of the republic, to your future, whether you have a family or not. Deciding that we should destroy the family, break up the family, and the state should supplant the family cannot lead to a better society. It can only lead to destruction. It can only lead to misery because, well, I've got history on my side. Because I've read a book. Because anything the state does to say that it's better than how the family does it, that's like saying uh, that the public sector is more efficient than the private sector. And of course, that's not true. The same conversations utilized to eliminate uh, the, the, the family unit are the same conversations that they use uh, regarding capitalism and how they try and bastardize that late-stage capitalism, this, that, the other. We have to admit that capitalism doesn't work. Of course it does. Your bastardizations, I shouldn't say yours, their bastardizations don't work. But capitalism, mwah, chef's kiss. So legislation that's going to take away rights. What right are, are you talking about? What right are we talking about that children somehow have? The right to agency, to make their own decisions, make their own medical decisions, financial decisions, of course, decisions about who they love. Why shouldn't an 11-year-old be able to date a 35-year-old? Totally normal, right? Love is love is love. Isn't that what I'm told? As a matter of fact, it was Lin-Manuel Miranda who told us that love is 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 love. He gave this whole acceptance speech. I think he was getting the the Tony. I think he was getting Tony, but it could have been something else. The Tony Awards, theater, anyway. But love is not love, obviously. Because if love is 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 love, then the 35-year-old can love the 11-year-old, and you're arguing that the 11-year-old is intelligent enough, mature enough, capable enough to engage in a loving, feel the air quotes and be sickened, relationship with the 35-year-old. That's the argument being made. That argument is abhorrent. And that argument should be fought. This question is asked to Gavin Newsom. And Gavin Newsom, of course, reminds you what he thinks of the family at large. You give me a comment on that because they don't feel like they're going to have any rights. As I just I don't know what their assertion is specifically. What's their, I heard one of them on TV talked about we were sexualizing was a school board member of Temecula. And what, it's a remarkable statement. I imagine you guys drilled down and made a determination of what they were referring to. I, I, I'm not aware of any effort to sexualize a curriculum. Well, uh, then you're not paying attention to what's happening with these school libraries where parents are saying, I don't think that my eight-year-old should be able to grab a book that shows cartoon depictions of oral sex and fisting. It is amazing what you won't see if you refuse to. Now, this would be different than if we were to make it up. Well, it's happening everywhere. Look, we just decided. No. People have come into school boards, school board meetings, and actually read what is in the books. They didn't make it up. They didn't just decide it was happening. They said, here, this is a problem. And you know what they were told? Don't read that smut here. Don't read that filth here. It's okay for my eight-year-old, but I can't read it at a school board meeting as an adult to other adults. 
It's smut. It's filth. It's pornography. I can't read it here, but my eight-year-old should be allowed to see it and have access to it in the school library? Maybe even push towards it. Hey, little Jenny, check out this book. It's really cool. I don't, I don't know how to be that creepy, so uh, forgive me if it doesn't come across as, as natural. There are some things, thankfully, I don't know how to do. The reporter continues. They just don't want, basically what they're, I'm paraphrasing what they were saying this morning, they feel like certain rights are, certain ideologies are being shoved down their children's throat, and they want to be able to control what their children are learning at school, and they feel like certain, these, some, Now, this conversation goes both ways. Uh, By the way, that's that's kind of funny. Um, Parents have rights, and parents should be able to control what's happening in their kids' schools. Now, that is true of all parents. Never have I believed that only the parents on the political right have a say. Parents believe all sorts of things. And this is why I like education on a community level. This is why I would do away with the Department of Education and return education to the states and really get the local involved more so. And then we can engage statewide best practices and you can engage state versus state best practices and people can learn from each other as opposed to the top down of a Department of Education, which has failed us. So, by the way, has public education, but let's save that for another day. Who said everybody's going to agree? People have different thoughts and ideas, and they should be able to voice them freely without any fear of physical or otherwise retribution. Someone will disagree with you at a school board meeting. As long as they're rationally voicing a point of view and a theory and idea, well, then good. And that that neighborhood, that town, that locality, however you want to describe it, will figure out what it is it wants to do and how it wants to do it. And they might might find that they've stumbled across something that's absolutely fantastic. They might find that they put themselves in a big hot mess of whatever it is you have a big hot mess of. But that's the way it should work. Gavin Newsom. What their children are learning at school and they feel like some of these... We have a responsibility as a state. Laid out specifically as it relates to curriculum, they have have to have a significant engagement with parents on changing curriculum. It's actually in statute. I hope they refer to that. The LCAP process requires parental engagement, parental advisory committees, school board engagement. In fact, lays out in such specific terms parental rights. We actually have a bill of rights of sorts as it relates to the ability for uh, an individual to uh, volunteer, as many parents are, and they're school to observe a classroom to review the curriculum once it's already established not just in preparation of it being established as it was in temecula i love it when gavin newsom admits that they've got the same thing in california that they put together in florida but in florida of course because it's it's ron DeSantis, it's evil and fascistic but they have a uh bill of rights of sorts in california good Good, good. Now, it might be a very different Bill of Rights. Let it continue. 1,300 families over a year were engaged in the development of that t- curriculum. That's parental engagement by definition, 98.8%. Forgive me for being precise, but I think 
uh, one has to be precise. 99% <laughs> supported or, or were simply agnostic. That's parental gay. I don't know what they're referring to. That's, that's, and I think one has a responsibility to do it. What specifically are you referring to? Is it the notion that if you reference someone being gay that somehow that's sexualizing our kids? Is that the case with straight people as well? I mean, if you're straight, is that sexualizing? I don't, I mean, it's, it's rather perverse that I offer that as a rhetorical question because you go, of course not. So by definition, I don't know what it is they're asserting. It's Orwellian, doublespeak. Or it's just so profoundly ignorant that they've been ginned up by outside agitators, which I think perhaps is a combination of this. And I'm deeply empathetic because I, I watch some of these poor parents and they've been so misled by these organized groups. Ah, yes, the misled parent. You see, he starts off by sounding like somebody you might actually want to listen to. And then he reminds you that the people who have questions, the people who have issues, the people who see the sexualization, they are profoundly ignorant, ginned up by outside agitators, and uh, they've been misled. If a book discussed a gay couple, no one has an, an issue. Wait, someone might have an issue, but I think in the main, no one has an issue. If the book is depec- depicting sexual acts of any kind, well, someone's going to ask, should an eight-year-old be looking at that? And if you say, hey, Tony, why are you always saying eight-year-old? Do you want to say 12-year-old? Should that be something that our schools are teaching? Is that part of a curriculum that our schools want? You argue that 99.8% supported or were simply agnostic, these 1,300 families. In the state of California, that doesn't seem like a tremendous number of families, nor do I know the families that were picked. But maybe as people have learned about what was maybe past or what was said is okay versus what has made its way in, maybe there's a disconnect. These parents are profoundly ignorant because they disagree with you. You started off being rational and of course you made the turn because in the end, they don't want parental involvement. They want parental compliance. Your job is to make the baby feed the baby, and let us do the rest. That's the argument being made by the governor here. Now, did I miss the context? I don't think so. Because the history of the past couple of years of what we've seen in school districts all across the country proves that to be true. Your job is just make the baby and then put him on the school bus. We do the rest. After all, we're the educators. Parents are ignorant when they say, this doesn't belong? This I have an issue with? The things that they've read in school board meetings have been told that they're sharing pornography? This is the guy that Democrats think should be the next president. So you know. I'm Tony Katz. The Dow is down 81. The Nasdaq is down 95. 
I love this story. Target Pride backlash adds to sales woes as culture wars rage in corporate America. The story by Melissa Repko over at CNBC. You could not get it more wrong. You, you, you couldn't, if you wanted to, get that story more completely backwards. The culture... This is not... Oh my gosh, look at the terrible culture wars in America. The left is always blaming the right for culture wars. You decided to have a massive section for for Pride Month, Aye. which has nothing to do about being gay anymore. Uh, uh, being gay is, is nowhere uh, even enough. Just calling it LGBTQ is just so absolutely horrific. You're taking people and you're deciding that because of a characteristic X, they're part of political group Y, and that is messed up. You decided not to put up a rainbow, which, uh, you know, go, let's go back to Ralphie May. We want the rainbow back. <laughs> it's, he had it right. Uh, rest his soul. Um, you decided to sell bathing suits to children that gave them an area to tuck their private parts. You, you did this. It wasn't a negative reaction. The CEO of Brian Cornell said it's a negative reaction, quote unquote to the retailer's pride merchandise. No, 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 no. It was a what the heck is wrong with you reaction for going after kids. What I'm amazed by is that they're actually feeling financial downward pressure. When we talk about the boycott of Bud Light, we've discussed how easy that one was. It's easy to engage that boycott. You mean I don't pick up the Bud Light, I pick up the Coors Light. So, so don't pick up that one, pick up this one. So, okay, I don't pick up Bud Light, I pick up Coors Light. And look at me, I'm a great American. And it has destroyed Bud Light, and nobody anticipated it. Even when they first start coming out, oh, Bud Light sales are hurt, oh, this, oh, look at the stock price. I said it right here. It's like, whoa, up. Let's see if it holds. We... When Nike first came out, you know, um, you know, what what was it? Colin Kaepernick stand up for something, uh, or a, a, you know, to stand up for something, you're willing to lose everything, whatever it was. And people were like, "Oh, I'm never buying Nike again." It didn't hurt Nike, but for a second. So you got to wait and get data. Well, now you have data. No longer the number one best selling beer in America. Uh, InBev Anheuser Busch has had to sell off eight different brands to deal with this. People have gotten fired. Uh, it it is uh, you are a social pariah if you're drinking Bud Light. It has become a touchstone of just uh, disgust because they hate they the, at least their former marketing people hated their audience and wanted to lecture to them. And so it was an easy boycott, though, because all you had to do was buy a different product. You didn't have to change your behaviors. Not shopping at Target is about changing behaviors. Not Target was the place you went. You're, you're a new mom, a new dad. You're in Target every hour. You've got uh, preteens going through clothes as they're growing three inches in a year. You're at Target every second. People change their shopping habits. This is much different than Bud Light. I want to see where this goes. 
people got disgusted. They literally changed where they drove to. That is a very big advance. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz today. Well, I mean, their investigations are just so patently stupid. I'm embarrassed for them. I mean, they're, they're you know, they're talking to they, arms they also, dealers you know, and people that illegally smuggle, that illegally smuggle Iranian oil to the Communist Chinese Party. They, they, they talk about tapes in the FBI and then Grassley gives up the game and says, well, we don't care whether he's guilty or not. I could go down the list. Now, I've got a lot of people who want to ask you questions. And if they want to ask questions okay, about the but economy, I just make that's one fine. point. These I, investigations, I, I, the, yeah, go ahead. Right. These investigations, they don't matter to the average American people. This is the right wing, the hard right wing talking to each other. Let them keep talking to each yeah. other. That's right. You don't care that Joe Biden might have been in business with Hunter Biden and bribes may have gone to the then vice president of the United States of America. And Lord only knows what's still taking place. You don't care, according to Chuck Schumer. Thank goodness Joe Scarborough is on the case. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. The Georgia indictment. We discussed it earlier. Where the issues are, where the case is, this utilizing RICO, this racketeering concept as a way of trying everybody at once so you can desperately get maybe one person and therefore find the whole chain, including President Trump, guilty. Is this the way this should be prosecuted? Is this the difference between the state and and the federal? What exactly are we looking at here and how exactly should the defense go breaking this down is Brett Tolman. Brett Tolman is uh, the executive director of Right on Crime, former U.S. attorney. You can follow him on Twitter, Tolman, T-O-L-M-A-N, Tolman Brett on Twitter. That's with two T's. Uh, you've gone through this indictment. You've been talking about it on, on cable news and, and, and other uh, places. As you go through what Georgia has put out, two questions for you. What is your take on what Fannie Williams, the district attorney, is doing? And how does this state prosecution differ than maybe how it would have appeared on a federal level? Tony, thanks for having me on. Um, appreciate the the discussions that we're, we're having on this. And, and I think the American people, you know, for the most part, they look at a, an indictment that comes down and, and they, you know, it's 98 pages and it's filled with facts and, and it's, and it cites to the law and and they their initial reaction has to be well it, it must be pretty serious or or you know they they presented it to a grand jury and but I back up and I say look let me give you my experience on this and let me let, let me tell you what this really is when when I said online that to me this is a frankenstein case it's been put together utilizing facts and 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 the law that are grotesque it needs to be on display it needs to be torn apart and its creator needs to be run out i firmly believe that because it is the utilization of a statute that was intended 
to mirror the federal statute. And there are some differences that we can talk about in Georgia and why why they think they have a case that they can pursue there. But this was this statute was intended to go after two types uh, of entities. One, a, a drug cartel or a mafia cartel that is running a seemingly legitimate enterprise that actually has at its foundation criminal conduct. And then two, gangs that operate as a, an organization, you know, violent gangs that, that do all kinds of criminal uh, behavior. Nobody thinks they're a legitimate enterprise, but you use, you use these statutes to attack those very difficult entities and take out the entire organization at, at, at one at one you know prosecution. What you don't use this this for is to go after somebody who is trying to use the law to challenge legally and factually um, an election, and and that's what's happening here. So we we've heard this before that that really this this case hinges on the idea that Trump was wrong for challenging the election results in and of themselves. Is that what Fannie Williams is saying? Or is there something else in it that someone could say, all right, there's a kernel of something here? Well, when, you, when, a, when a prosecutor charges a conspiracy, they, they will list out all of the individuals that are involved in a conspiracy, and they'll list each of their conduct, whether they've indicted that co-conspirator or not, and they'll outline all of the conduct of each individual including their main targets. And that's those, those facts that they put into an indictment for conspiracy are supposed to reveal that that group is operating a criminal enterprise. And, and, and when you back up and you say, okay, what is, what is the criminal enterprise? What are they really doing? The argument is, coming from Georgia, that they knew the election wasn't fraudulent. They knew that there was no basis to challenge it, but they did so anyway, knowing that was false. Well, guess what? That's not illegal conduct, Tony. We have allowed that for 200 plus years. You're going to be absolutely wrong. It doesn't even apply just to an election. You can go into court knowing that you don't have a case you can argue that you that, that you've been wronged, and you can be lying to the court that you were wronged, and you can lie to the court about the facts and the law supporting your case. And guess what? It gets thrown out. You don't get prosecuted criminally for being wrong or even lying about what the facts and the law say about your case. Talking to Brett Tolman, a former U.S. attorney. He's the executive director of Right on Crime. You can go to rightoncrime.com, get more information, a uh, part of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, You're you're Trump in in this case. You have to to mount uh, the defense like you're mounting the defense in three other indictments. Is it easier or is it harder when you are dealing with these Georgia state RICO statutes and the fact that you're going to be charged with 18 other people. Yeah, it it does. It makes it harder um, in one sense. um, And, and yet it's easier in another, a federal, in a federal case, you have very little maneuverability as a defendant and a defense attorney to try to get rid of the case. Um, Very limited in the motions you can bring. 
In the state, however, you have greater ability to maneuver as a defense attorney. There are more motions to dismiss you can file. There are arguments that you can make. You can try to take matters up on an inter- what's called an interlocutory appeal, which is an appeal during the, the criminal case itself. In the federal system, you got to wait till it's all done. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. Will, will Trump and his legal team um, be able to dismiss this? Will they, will they get a fair uh, assessment while they're, while they're inside the courtroom? But remember, Tony, <clears throat> there's a reason why the founders said, um, you know, did not prohibit someone from running for president of the United States if they had a felony. They knew that those in political power might try to eliminate opponents by prosecuting them and giving them a felony. While some countries say if you have a felony conviction, you can't run for president, our country does not. Um, and it's for that reason, the, because they saw, the founders saw that the, the, the criminal law could be used to, to bury political opponents. Now, to that end, you actually uh, reposted this today on, on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling the thing, I can't keep up. Um, <laughs> It was an article from 2016, October of 2016 on CNN. This is the headline. You can't make this up. Trump threatened to jail Clinton if elected. These countries might do the same. And it was an article about what an absolutely awful thing it is to threaten to jail your political opponents. What makes this different uh, than, as Dana Bash put it, what makes this country different from countries with dictators in Africa or Stalin or Hitler or any of those countries with dictators and totalitarian leaders is when they took over, they put their opponents in jail. This was 2016. We are not eight years removed from it. And very much certainly the Trump supporters say this looks like election interference. Of course, President Trump is referring to it as election interference. Other people might say, well, the case was going to get brought. The guy was always going to run for president. He could always claim election interference. How do you make that claim stick? Is that something for really the court of public opinion? Or is there something within the actual court system that the, the Trump team can utilize to their advantage? Well, there's two things that are interesting right now. The timeline and the coordinated effort of all these prosecutions, these cases, um, uh, at, if, if you look at when they bring the charges, they can't hide from the fact that it now very much appears that these charges are coordinated uh, to protect the Bidens at the same time to bury a, a political adversary. And then, you know, go back and, and Tony, you, you and I both remember when Jim Comey stood at the pulpit and said that no, no reasonable prosecutor would bring this case against Hillary. And DOJ came out with a policy that said we will not bring cases that will have an immediate impact on a presidential or significant election. So that was the tenor and the, and the tone of DOJ and, and the left in 2015 and 2016. And, and yet, as you point out, the left has now embraced, emphatically embraced, an approach and a use of the criminal justice system to take down a political opponent or individuals that they that, that the message they don't approve of uh, because it threatens their ability to maintain power. That's where we're at. And it, it is going to take some heroic effort, uh, both in the media, with voices like yours and, and in, in politics with with 
individuals who get into office who are willing to gut power of these large organizations and, and especially in the criminal justice system. Talking to Brett Tolman, a former U.S. Uh, attorney uh, and the executive director of Right on Crime, rightoncrime.com. We just saw that we saw that uh, Mark Meadows, who is then chief of staff, is looking to I'm going to use the terminology be removed from this. Basically, he wants this taken out of state and brought uh, to to federal court because his argument is I was a an official in the executive branch, therefore in the federal government. And you can't bring these charges against me because I was doing my job. I think the same claim, while not being part of the federal government, is going to be made by John Eastman, who uh, worked as a lawyer for President Trump, who said, "Look, who was going to say, look, the guy asked me for what a possible opportunity is or, or how he should address this. I gave him the, the legal possibility. I was doing my job as a lawyer. How in the world do you label me a co-conspirator? Uh, in the case of the former chief of staff, in the case of the lawyer john eastman um do either one of these guys have a chance of getting removed from this uh rico case yeah and i I would add jeff clark who's the you know assistant attorney general at ndoj at the time and so you do have questions of immunity there 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 is immunity in in government positions you also have you know some real questions about going after um a president former president based on the uh, his actions while sitting as a president those are new new for us tony we don't we don't see this kind of effort and and so we're going to have to see if um you know what what a judge you know what the their their analysis is i don't think they'll get it removed uh to federal court i don't think they'll be um eliminated from the case i think there's a really good chance that this is going to be pushed to a jury and and that's where I think Trump is is going to have to to win the fight. He's going to get one. He's got to get one juror, at least one juror, to to understand and see this for for what the prosecution actually is. Let's let us now be the people of of brass tacks. You have been in these situations. You have been in courtrooms. You understand where we're. Uh, you know the the political nature of where the jury selection. Is and how difficult that is to 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 find uh, what what you think is the right crowd. You know, picking jurors is never easy. Uh, if you're a betting man, Brett, percentage chance that Trump is going to jail. Not that he should, but is. So, I, I think the more likely than not, the conviction, the case in Washington D.C. I think is the most difficult case for him in terms of a conviction and going to prison. They, they have limited ability to defend on that case. They have a judge that is itching to take on this case and wants to sentence Donald Trump. You have a jury that it will be very difficult to, to get one individual, far more difficult than in Georgia, to get one individual willing to acquit um, um, Donald Trump. And so with a conviction, that judge is going to immediately take him into custody and and is going to sentence him within 30 days to a sentence that will be several years in prison. It's very, very possible that Donald Trump will be running for president and appealing that conviction uh, from the inside of a jail cell. 
The difference, by the way, while I still have got a minute with you, is that if he's convicted regarding Jack Smith, the special counsel, and he wins the presidency, he can, although it will be certainly the fight of fights, he could pardon himself. Or somebody else who's a Republican wins, he can get a pardon. But if he goes to jail in the RICO case in Georgia, there is no pardon possible from the president. That's right. There's no pardon possible. You have to follow state law. And in Georgia, you would ultimately have a commission that weighs in on pardons and then the governor. So it would be out of his hands. So he does have he has to fight, you know, quite quite seriously on all fronts, obviously. But in Georgia and in New York, he needs to win. Brett Tolman, rightoncrime.com is where you find his work, rightoncrime.com. Brett, I appreciate you taking the time. More to get to. Find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz today. So a year after giving us the Inflation Reduction Act, More and more of the Biden administration are proud to say it was never about inflation. We have to cut the carbon pollution that's driving the climate crisis. And that's what the Inflation Reduction Act is all about. It wasn't about you. It wasn't about what you pay at the grocery store. It wasn't about rising costs. It wasn't about rising housing costs. It wasn't worrying about interest rates. It sure as hell wasn't about inflation as a whole. It was about their ideology. The only person who didn't know that was Joe Manchin when he voted for the thing. And now I'm going to hear stories about how no labels might create a bipartisan ticket to run for president. You think I'm going to vote for a guy who wasn't smart enough to know he was being lied to? Nah. I'm not doing that. I don't know about you. This is Tony Katz today. Tony Katz today.